This is Tanner Today. I'm Trish Wood. This is Tammy Peterson. This is Curtis Stone. This is Quick Tick McDick. This is Akira the Don, and you're listening to the Sean Newman Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, folks. Happy Friday. How is everybody doing today? Well, another week come and gone. Good old Friday. Hopefully you got some uh, plans for the weekend. This guy's going to be doing a little bit of uh, U7 and U9 hockey. That's what's going on on this side. Now, today's episode sponsor, Silver Gold Bulb. I asked you guys yesterday. I'm asking again today. I'm trying to flood their inbox. I want to let them know that uh, we're paying attention here on this side. And so what you can do, a favor. In the show notes is either way. You can either email them, smp at silvergoldbowl.com. Just give them a note saying, hey, thanks for supporting the Sean uh, Newman podcast. Or inquire about their services. You can you can do that as well. Uh, you're emailing Graham. You can give him a call. That number is in the show notes. I won't rattle it off here. Of course, Silver Gold Bowl is North America's premier precious metals dealer with state-of-the-art distribution centers in Calgary and Las Vegas. Um, they uh, ensure fastfully insured discreet shipping right to your doorstep and offer a diverse set of services including including buyback, wholesale, registered savings, as well as uh, storage and refining solutions. And also, they started here in Alberta, Rocky Mountain House. So uh, pretty cool story. They've teamed up with the podcast. We just got this new email address kind of just to see if anyone's paying attention, and that's where I need the help of all you fine people. If you could just pause it, scroll down, send them a quick note saying, hey, thanks for supporting the Sean Newman podcast. Whatever your thoughts are, there's been lots of great emails going out, and I appreciate that. Um... Uh, I, actually, at times I don't have the words because there's been some really heartfelt uh, messages go to Silver Gold Bowl, and I appreciate that immensely. And uh, if you're interested in getting stuff from them, maybe just give them a call and talk to Graham, and and uh, all that's in the show notes, folks. Um, or, you know, their last day of shipping is the 19th, so if you're looking to get something for a stocking or a loved one for Christmas, uh, make a call, shoot an email, you get the point. Rectech Power Products, for the past 20 years, Rectech has been committed to excellence in the power sports industry. They offer a full line up and uh, they got some cool cool stuff here in uh, on the west side of Lloydminster that is a great showroom and the uh, Stark Varg electric cross no electric cross country bike electric what what word am I looking here for oh boy oh boy welcome to Fridays and uh, it looks like a new way it look like it looks like it's straight from like something Tony Stark would build you know and it seems like huh that's that's something, and uh, supposedly it's phenomenal in uh, dirt biking. Dirt bike. There we go. I don't know why I had a hard time with that. I mean, what are you going to do? They're open Monday through Saturday. they got a parts department. You can find out everything at rectechpowerproducts.com. Uh, uh, McGowan Chartered Professional Accountants. Uh, they've been in the financial industry since 2009. They offer accounting, bookkeeping, business consulting and training, financial planning, and tax planning. They are lovely. I can't speak highly enough about uh, Kristen and team over there. They deal with this rascal all the time. And uh, in the middle of COVID, they support the show. They continue the sports show. They support free speech and starting conversations. You can uh, find out more about them at McGowanCPA.ca. A, Ignite Distribution out of Wainwright, Alberta. That's Shane Stafford. He supplies industrial safety and welding automotive parts and has on-site inventory management. So you can make sure, you know, as we inch closer to that uh, Christmas season, you know, you never run out of what it is that makes you tick, you know, and he'll make sure of that. That's what you get when you give Shane Stafford a call, 780-842-3433. Now, 
Let's get on to that tale of the tape brought to you by Hancock Petroleum. For the past 80 years, they've been an industry leader in bulk fuels, lubricants, methanol, and chemicals, delivering to your farm, commercial, or oil field locations. For more information, visit them at HancockPetroleum.ca. He's a retired Canadian politician who is the founder and only leader of the Reform Party of Canada. He served as the leader of the official opposition from 1997 to 2000, and he led Alberta's Fair Deal panel in 2019 and the Public Health Emergencies Governance Review panel in 2023. I'm talking about Preston Manning. So buckle up. Here we go. Welcome to the Sean Newman Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Preston Manning. So first off, sir, uh, thanks for hopping on. Well, thank you for having me. Um, you know, it's uh, your name has come up an awful lot uh, in the conservative side of things uh, when it comes to uh, politics and everything else. I'm, uh, you know, I'm going to be honest. As a young man, I had no idea about half the things you've done. And uh, re- reading back through uh, some of uh, the, your history, I've been rather impressed i was like okay there's a lot to cover here in uh in, in in today's chat and we'll see where we get to um but i was hoping you could just start with a little bit of your background preston and letting the audience know you know whether it's where you grew up or or uh some of your thoughts from your early years i'll let you yeah, take it wherever yeah. you want well i come from a political family my father was involved in the provincial politics. He was in the Alberta legislature for 33 years, 25 years as premier. So I kind of grew up with with, uh, politics. Uh, I studied physics at uh, university and then went into economics and operated a management consulting firm for uh, 20 years. And then uh, I'm conscious of Western political history that every so often the West kicks up a new political movement and in the late 1980s, I was involved in uh, creating the Reform Party of Canada, which was a new party, and uh, eventually got some members in the House of Commons in 1993. I, I was elected in 1993. And then we expanded the Reform Party to include become what was called the Canadian Alliance, which roped in a, a large number of provincial conservatives that supported what we were doing federally. And I lost the leadership in the process of trying to make all these changes. But then uh, Stephen Harper and Peter McKay took that one more step and created the Conservative Party of Canada, which formed a minority government and then a majority government. So uh, that that's kind of the short version of the political history. And then when I uh, was out of Parliament, I, I kept working away on various ideas for democratic reform, uh, constitutional reform, fiscal reform, mainly on the conservative side of the house. I'm going to, I'm going to draw you back to, to your younger years. Um, and, and you know, cause uh, I, I've been talking uh, off the air a little bit about uh, second generation, whether it's farmers or, 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 or business owners, et cetera. And you having a father who served a long time in politics would have an interesting insight into some of the knowledge that he uh, had learned from his career and I assume passed on to you. And I was, you know, I, I, it's funny. When I used to ask the question, you know, when was the last time, because the Maverick Party had, had uh, started in the last federal election, and I kept asking all these, like, political nerds, you know, like, when was the, when was the last time an upstart uh, political party won in its first election 
and nobody could tell me. And somehow I stumbled upon the social credit party. And I was like, well, here's one in Alberta of all places. And then, uh, you know, in preparation for today, I realized uh, your father served under William uh, Aberhart. And I was like, oh, my, this is interesting. You know, um, I was hoping I, I could pick your brain a little bit about uh, what your father learned from William Aberhart or or just that that time of the social credit uh, party in Alberta. Well, the the West produced two new parties in the Depression. Like the Depression was a terrible uh, time. Alberta's economy was uh, virtually all agriculture, and the, the combination of drought and the Depression, the uh, the the, the uh, net income of Alberta dropped by almost fifty percent. The same with Saskatchewan. An enormous amount of unrest. Aberhart was a high school principal in Calgary, who who pioneered. Uh, you'd find this interesting. He pioneered political and religious radio broadcasting in Canada. He got into that in the 20s when radio was a novel thing. And uh, he had this uh, religious radio program. My father w was on a homestead in Saskatchewan with a crystal radio set and picked up this and decided to come to Calgary to study under Eberhard operated a sort of a theological school. Uh, and my father came to study there, actually intending to get into the ministry. But in, in the Depression, uh, Eberhard started to... Uh, he had this institute on 8th Avenue in Calgary, and they operated a soup kitchen. In those days, there was very little welfare or anything by the government. The churches did whatever there was. And uh, he started to see young people jumping off the CPR trains to avoid the CPR police. They were riding the rails, trying to find work anywhere. And he started to see in those in those lineups uh, uh, at his soup kitchen, young people that he'd sent off to be lawyers and doctors and teachers and that. And, and this absolutely infuriated him. So he got studying the causes of depression. He hit on this social credit idea, which actually came from England, where the, the idea was that when your economy was depressed, if you if you expanded the money supply, and not so much that you created inflation, but you could kickstart the economy, it was called social credit. So he started talking about this on his radio broadcast. Uh, Eberhardt was considered himself an educator, not a politician. He he just wanted people to know this idea. He didn't want to start a political party. But there started to be little groups around the province decided that they wanted to push this idea politically. And so the Social Credit Party was formed. And in the 1935 election, the government at that time was the United Farmers of Alberta, a very good government, actually. But, of course, they just got hammered because it was in the Depression. And the Social Credit Bunch ended up electing uh, the, the first election they ever contested. They ended up forming a government. My father said in those days to get elected to the legislature, all you had to be able to assure the voters was that you had never been anywhere near the legislature before. That was your main qualification. Don't you? Don't you? So, feel so that's like... how this new new government got in, and then Eberhardt died, uh, and my father succeeded him as premier, and and they they won nine general elections before eventually being replaced by the Lougheed Conservatives. For for the audience, uh, Preston, their first election they won fifty two of sixty two seats, right? Like yeah. just to, oh, just yeah. to, to form well, government, they, and and the public threw every last member of the UFA government out. The premier, every cabinet minister, every MLA. I mean, it was a time of, of just turmoil. People didn't know what to do, so they why don't we try this new bunch? <laughs> doesn't it? Doesn't it, uh, it? Certainly, I don't know where we're at in in the cy uh, cycle of time. 
But doesn't it feel like in politics these days we're getting close to that? I mean, uh, whether we're talking the federal government or or close to home, just, uh, you, you know, your your city government or wherever, doesn't it feel like that turmoil is is Well, is yes, and, and of course, things are all speeded up now. There's In federal politics, there's what's starting to be called the nine-year rule. Mulroney lasted nine years. The Cretchen government lasted 10 years. The Harper government lasted nine years. And the current federal government will 2024 will be nine years <laughs> so i think there's knocking on the door of time for change yeah it, well it's interesting i always i, I keep coming back to aberhart and i am i yeah, saying a- that aberhart 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 i apologize that's right um, william aberhart because <laughs> because you know it, it's interesting because uh i believe his nickname was bible bill uh if i'm yes if I'm, oh yeah because he was more he was more a religious. Well, he was an educator. He he ran the biggest high school in Calgary, and then he had this Bible Institute on the theological side. Well, it's it's interesting to me because I see uh, a bit of a return to that, if you would. There's a lot of people wondering where uh, traditional values have gone in our society, and I, I see that starting to uh, be quite the conversation of uh, topic or topic of conversation lately. And um, I, I just, you know, I look back and I go, the last government to walk in and form government, last party to form government, where they just walked in, had a new party, and times were tough. And, and you know, and you say, well, as long as you said you weren't a part of the, the former government, that was almost a, a requirement for getting elected. I'm like, we're getting close to that because, like, tons of people are talking about traditional values because it's lost right now. Like, it just seems like we don't talk about it at all. And yet I see on here and in conversations with people across uh, probably the Western provinces, um, it's becoming a big conversation of topic. And I find that um, very fascinating because it's it's been lost uh, or not talked about or or slowly just faded away. I'm, I'm not sure. You'd have an interesting view on that. I mean, uh, coming from um, uh, being your father's son and one, and then two, just your, your entire time in politics. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, yeah. Well, I think a legitimate question for people to ask candidates these days are what what are your fundamental values that you bring to bear on public policy and on politics? It's a legitimate question. And for years, a lot of candidates have shied away from answering that, you know, say, well, I, you know, I, I believe in honesty and democracy and, and give these vague generalized answers. But I, I think the public are, have a legitimate right to ask, what, what are your fundamental values? And from my standpoint, I have a Christian commitment, uh, more on the evangelical side. What One interesting story about Eberhard, if, if you dropped Eberhard's Bible on the table, it would open up to the third chapter of John's gospel, where Jesus talked about the need for a personal vertical relationship between yourself and God. In Saskatchewan, Tommy Douglas was starting the CCF party about the same time. The Depression produced two parties in the West. If you dropped Tommy's Bible on the, he was a minister too, he, he dropped his Bible on the table, it opened to the 10th chapter of Luke's gospel, which is the story of the Good Samaritan, the guy that helped his neighbor yeah. when 
is in trouble. And so, and, and these, this is sort of the horizontal dimension of the, Eberhard had the vertical dimension of the Christian faith. Toby Douglas had the horizontal. If, if you put them together, you actually have the cross, kind of the overall symbol. But, but these, were very, these were very fundamental values that motivated these people to get involved in, in the political arena. And uh, I think there's merit in rediscovering some of those roots today. Yeah, well, I, just to me, from where I sit and all the conversations I've been having, I just see it starting to um, become part of the conversation. And for for I'm I'm only 37. For the first yeah. 35 years of my life now, in fairness, uh, a couple of those years I wouldn't have been thinking about much, anyways. But um, I've never heard it come into the conversation at all. And now it seems like okay, this is a part of the conversation and we got to talk about this because the further we get from what are our fundamental values, we get into this la-la land of uh, a whole bunch of stuff that no longer makes sense to a, a growing portion of the population. Yeah, no, I think that's a very legitimate subject. And the place I say to, for voters to start is to start asking those questions so that candidates have to think through what are my fundamental values and can I communicate them to, uh, to people? That, that's a good place to start. Let's talk about, well, actually, before I get to the Reform Party, I, I just want, you being the son of a premier, your father was a uh, premier from, what, 1943 to 1968 of Alberta. Yeah, yeah. What lessons did he pass along to you? Because, like, you were young when you first ran for your, your first election. I think you were 23 um, when, when, uh, um, when you were, were actually defeated in the federal uh, uh, yeah, election. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. but what lessons was your fault? You know, I just I I look at it and I don't know where I started to realize this. Whether it was just a couple of days ago or a couple of years, ago, I have no idea. But like farmers pass along. You know, I I come from a farming family, so if you grew up on the farm, you passed along uh, generational yeah. kind of like thoughts and why you you know why do you do whatever at a certain time of year and why do you do that and you kind of get these like tricks of the trade or almost like. Uh, 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 you know, to steal maybe a term from gaming these days, like a cheat code. It's like, oh, you do that because you bypass all this stuff. I was kind of curious, what what did your father pass along to you when you were first starting into politics? Like, listen, well, Preston. He, he didn't make a conscious effort to encourage me to get into politics. Like, politics is a rough game. And this is a, tr a challenge you have when you have children yourself and you're in politics, it's a rough game and it is not conducive to personal happiness if that's what your objective is. Particularly <laughs> today, particularly today, when the, the biggest single reason people, uh, if you try to recruit candidates today, the biggest reason people give you for not getting into the arena is I will not subject myself and my family to the abuse that you're going to get, particularly through the social media. So my father never tried to encourage me, but of course I learned a lot uh, from him. And uh, w one of the things in the office of every elected official, th there's a bunch of statute books in Alberta in every MLA's office, every cabinet minister's office, there's a, a bunch of books called the revised statutes of Alberta. It's all the laws of Alberta. And then after that year of the revision, there's another volume on the statutes for that year and that year and that year. So one day I'm in my father's office and he says, you ought to, I'm about 17, I said, he says, you ought to read the revised statutes of Alberta. This is five <laughs> you're telling a 17 year old kid to read and I said you know I said you know you're crazy why why on earth would I do that no he says you you think 
these statute books are just dull, dry, legal stuff on paper. He says behind every one of these acts and the bill that got it through the legislature, there's a story. And there's a story of real people with real aspirations and real concerns and real this and real that. And this bill, this act, is an attempt to address those concerns. There's a story. So we used to play this uh, uh, little game where I, I put, pick out a statute book. And in the beginning, there's a table of contents. And, and I pick one and say, what's the story behind this? And he, he didn't invariably have the story. So I, that's something I learned about law. And, and, and if you're a legislator, this is not just about legal words on paper. You, you are dealing with real people's lives. You're, they're civil servants that get up every morning, years after that act was passed, and they have to do stuff or not do stuff because of what the law says. And, uh, and so that was one of my early exposures to uh, kind of to, to lawmaking, which is what a legislator ends up doing. You grew, you grew up in the political life, the political eye, son of a premier. You got to experience that firsthand. That didn't steer you away from politics? Well, of course, in those days, the... the, the, the uh, political people, maybe right up till the 60s or the early 70s, if you kept your family life and your personal life separate from your politics, it, it, pe people and the media even would leave it alone. But if, if you started to use your family for political purposes, here's my lovely wife, here's my wonderful children, here's our beautiful dog. You know, if you start doing that, you're trying to use your family for political games, then you make your family fair game for your opponents and everybody else. But back in those days, if you kept your family separate from uh, the political arena, the, the, the family was left alone. So there wasn't a lot of strain the way there is today on the uh, family. I went to a country school. My, my father, because he, he came from a farming background and felt you always had to have land. So even when he was premier, we, we had a dairy farm about a half an hour out of Edmonton. And I went to a country school, Horse Hill High School. <laughs> Horse Hill was halfway between Fort Edmonton and Fort Saskatchewan way back in the old days where they kept the horses. And this was the school. And, uh, and the fact that I was related to the premier made very little difference. I mean, the teachers never you know, picked on me or made me stand out or feel awkward in any way, shape, or form. The the only occasion in which uh, being related to the premier came about was when they opened the legislature in those days, they always had this big reception and, and had a big reception and served the sandwiches. But these sandwiches were very special sandwiches. They were chopped up into little tiny pieces. And the day after the legislature opened, my mother used to be in charge of this reception. I would bring a pile of these sandwiches to Horse Hill High School. And, and the only question was, why do those legislator guys chop up the sandwiches into such small jobs? So that was a about as political as Horse Hill High School got. I can just imagine kids. I, I, even as I'm sitting here, I'm like, so why do they chop it up little, little? You know, I, I, don't, I don't, they think I never, it's fancier I never could that answer way. That question. I never could answer that question. The time commitment back when you were, were your father was premier to when you're racing across the country talking to uh, the Canadian populace. Was the time commitment as a kid, like, was your dad always gone? 
or were, was that never a thing back then to worry about? Uh, I'm just, uh, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm trying to understand because a lot, one of the things that politicians always say, or people who don't go into politics, I don't want to subject my family to it, but in one way or another, we're all subjecting our, our family to, if you got terrible rulers, you know, like I, right now, I'm not a big fan of the liberal government. I know a huge chunk of the population ain't. So by yeah. not getting involved, we're subject to it anyways. Yeah. So yeah. has the time commitment, like was when you, when your dad was premier to when you're the leader of the official opposition, now in fairness, we're talking federal versus provincial, but was it different back then? Well, his he was a work, I wouldn't say workaholic, but he, he would always work. So he'd, he'd run the government from Monday to Friday. We had this dairy farm and he would work on the farm on Saturday. And then he had this religious radio broadcast. He carried on this broadcast that Abraham had for years, which today you couldn't even think of doing, but in those days you could. So he was always doing something. And uh, I, and I, I, you know, he didn't have a lot of time for, my, myself and my, my brother, but we we uh, I we understood that I, I understood that and respected it. It didn't cause any particular resentment on my part. Now now federal politics is another ball of wax. I mean, this is the second largest country on the face of the earth. Like we started a new political party with n nothing. You know, you got three in those days three hundred federal ridings all the way from the west end of Vancouver Island to East Cape in Newfoundland. You you try to get around to all those ridings. It's an enormously time-consuming process. When you say you're talking about your dad and you're saying which a I think is super cool that he'd go back on the weekends and work on the farm, and uh, and continue his radio program. That I find that fascinating. When you say you couldn't do that anymore, you mean the religious part of it, or yes. you mean the radio part part of it? No, no, well, the religious part of it. Like today, you know, what what's a elected official doing? You know, preaching on Sunday kind of thing. Well, one story I remember on that. I used to go around to. I, I used to keep my ears open, even when I was quite young. I'd go to events, go to rodeos, go to things, and listen to what people were saying, what they're saying politically, what they're saying about the government. And I remember one time going to some rodeo in a small town. I can't remember how old I was. And there was a bunch of cowboys sitting around the fire. The thing hadn't started. It was going to start at noon. And there was a pickup truck that had the radio blaring. And it was my father's radio broadcast. And this young cowboy says to the older guys that were around the fire, I, I don't like the idea of a politician talking about religion and faith and stuff like that. And one of the older cowboys said, and I, I don't agree with that either, but uh, it was religious faith that got my old man and my old lady through a depression and a war. And so I, I kind of respect that, even if I don't believe it, which was a kind of an interesting comment. That was at about the point where people were starting saying, you shouldn't mix your faith and your politics. And the, but this one old what? fella kind of cautioned that, well, better remember, faith had a lot to do with our parents getting through a depression and a war until you've got through a depression and a war and understand what it takes to do that. Maybe you shouldn't be quite as critical of them, which was not a bad point. I think it's a great point. And actually, yeah. I'm at the, you know, we say that uh, politicians don't uh, mix politics and religion, but I mean, whether it's climate, whether it's the... Um, the gender 
fluidity of all yeah. things. They're preaching uh, different religions in my mind. And uh, at this yeah. point, yeah. I go, you know, I you say you're Christian, you say it's like I don't I don't mind it. I actually like a little bit of transparency. It doesn't mean I have to tune in. It doesn't mean I yeah. got to go, yeah. you know, but to, to now we try and act like everything's so, you know, yeah, no, no, and I'm, I'm, I'm this truthful guy. I do everything, but you don't say anything. And yeah. I think it's what uh, really uh, a lot of Albertans admired about Danielle Smith when she was coming around to shows like this and uh, trying to get elected uh, for leadership of the UCP is she spoke to everything. And that was very admirable because it's been so long. It feels like, and maybe I'm wrong on this, Preston, that we've had a politician here in Alberta do such a thing. It just doesn't feel like that's happened at least, you know, and I, I, I say that, but it's been a short maybe decade that I've been paying attention and maybe less than that. Cause I, I'm going to be honest when I got back from playing hockey, then it was like, okay, let's get a fan. You know, I gotta get, you know, I'm gonna get married. Then I'm going to have kids. And then when you're having young kids, you don't pay attention to anything. Cause you're just trying to keep yourself awake. Cause you know, you're going to be up all night and, and on and on it goes, but certainly she was a breath of fresh air when she came in and was talking about everything uh, and yeah, just seeing how yeah. the media reacts, you know, I don't know. I, I, the, the, I get what the old cowboys saying, I guess, sitting here, you know, yeah. years and upon years later. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's encouraging to hear that. I hope that's true. I, I think one thing caution that when you talk about communicating your faith and relating it to politics, you're not talking about linking the, the institutional church to politics. That, that can be a problem. It can hurt the church or the religious organization, whatever it is, and it can hurt politics. But you 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 can keep the institutions separate, but you don't keep faith separate from Correct. the political. Faith is faith is yeah, a big yeah. part of life. Yeah. And that's where asking people what are their most deeply held values and, and being open to them sharing their faith values uh, ought to be a good thing. It ought to be something that's tolerated in a country that professes to believe in freedom of religion. You know, um one of the things that I found interesting about the Reform Party. Was that you allowed people to um, vote and express themselves quite? I, the, I think the term was freely, uh, yeah. you know, instead of everybody having to vote the same way, the same way, the same way. Um, do you think that can work in today's world where everything gets scrutinized? Well, I I, I think it it can. We, we one of the planks in the Reform Party's platform because it was it wanted to strengthen the democratic side of the political arena was called free votes. That it, particularly a vote in the assembly or in our case the House of Commons, you were free to vote the position of your constituents, even if it was different than the party role or even the government role if you were in government. And what I tried to get uh, John Cretchen to do, I, I even wrote it out for him. I said, get up and say this. It'll take 20 seconds. Uh, you just say that the, the, in the view of the government, if the government, if, if a motion in this house is defeated, or, or if one of our motions is defeated, one of our bills is defeated, the government will not resign. What the government will do is then ask the house to pass a, a non-confidence motion. Did you mean to actually just throw out this section of a bill or throw out the bill? Or did you actually mean to defeat the government, throw out the government? And if you did that, 99 times out of, of 100, the, the members that voted against a particular measure and wanted to defeat it would go back and support the government if the government has a majority of the seats. But it would free up the average member to uh, express their constituents' views, particularly if it was different than the, the party line or the government line. That one measure would uh, would make the uh, assembly or make the 
the, the House of Commons, a, a more representative chamber where people actually felt their member could represent what, what they believed in. And uh, of course, Gretchen said, uh, but uh, no, no, <laughs> that would be re relaxing party discipline. I had another, I used to give a speech to the, in, the, in the House of Commons to the backbenchers, on, in, in our case, it was liberal backbenchers. I'd say, can you guys count? Now, we sometimes doubt that you can because we see how you handle the budget, but can you count? Will If you can count, will you notice that there are more of you than there are on the front benches? There are actually more of you backbenchers than there are in the cabinet. So if you exercised your power that comes from numbers in that chamber, you could have a lot more influence than you do. But the party discipline is so strong that th those kind of reforms were never accepted. Do you think party discipline like that ruins democracy well it, it, it even if you abolish the parties today within five years there'd be political parties because what happens if a group of people vote together once and now they vote together three times because they find that they agree now they vote together 10 times you've all you've now got the essence of a party so it's not i don't think you can democratize the system by doing away with the parties but you could free up this uh, this uh, voting system so that the average member had more capacity to represent the constituents. Mm, that's an interesting thought. One of the things we'd, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm sure you've thought about this an awful lot when it comes to democracy and trying to make it run efficiently, if you would, uh, in that what if nobody had a party? What if everybody was independent and was actually held accountable to their voter recall of their constituency? Do you see it like does that idea even well you could you could start out like that, but as I say, you'd end up having a party because those independent members would find on a particular issue there's a bunch of them that would think the same. You you can't pass a law in, in the parliament or legislature unless a majority of voters of, of members vote for it. So they they'd find they voted together with this group once, twice, but by the time you've done it 20 times, whether you call it a party or not, you are a party. So I, I I don't think you can do away with the party system, but I think you can do a lot to make it more democratic and representative. Well, one of the things I uh, was looking forward to this conversation, Preston, is I go like, you know, there's probably nothing new under the sun. I think, you know, for the most part, we can probably agree on that. And yet I'm, you know, uh, 40 plus years younger than you. And I'm just new at paying attention to all this. So I look at you as like a wealth of knowledge because well, you've done things that, uh, and experienced things that I think most people would be, well, I mean, most people, if they're going to jump into the political uh, sphere of things would, would want to be a part of, I mean, you, you've, you've had a, a mentor in your father, whether he wanted you to get into it or not, hand down some very, uh, um, Good knowledge, I would assume, from a guy who ran a new political party and won a majority government in Alberta. And I look at the Reform Party and I just I I, I, see, I hear the stories of the Reform Party. You know, I was born in 86. So by the time things are going, I haven't paid anything attention to politics. And before I could even do that, they're already gone. Right. And so when I look at the history of that, I'm like this is fascinating because, you know, the Maverick Party was basically ran on. Um, the reform idea, except we're never going to try and go further than Western Ontario or Northwestern Ontario and run candidates. That's what we're going to do. Um, 
when you first started the Reform Party, or at least the Reform Party conversation in the early or late 80s, I guess, um, what was the idea? What set this off in motion? Well, at the, at that time, the the West felt the, the neglected, and there was a, anger. The National Energy Program uh, almost crippled the uh, oil and gas industry. The, the, uh, the during the Mulroney years, there was a contract that an aerospace contract that was supposed to go to a, a company in Winnipeg, and it was taken, even though they were the lowest bidder, it was taken away from them and given to uh, Quebec. So there was this Western alienation that uh, that reform undertook to address. But re reform's objective from the very beginning was to form a, a government, not, not just to be a protest party. The, the aim is to, if you get into politics, is to get enough support eventually to actually form a government. And in, in the constitution of the Reform Party, the, I, I had the lawyer put in a sunset clause. It, it actually would come to an end in 10 years unless the members decided to continue it or to revise it in some way from based on what they learned. And by golly, by 1997, we got uh, we formed the official opposition, but we still weren't big enough to get form a government. So we formed an alliance with the Klein Conservatives provincially in Alberta, the Philman Conservatives in Manitoba, and the Harris Conservatives in Ontario. Now we got this even bigger thing. We got all this reform federally, but we got these provincial allies. It was called the Canadian Alliance. And then, uh, as I say, I lost the leadership in trying to do all of this. But uh, the alliance continued. And then Stephen Harper and Peter McKay, Stephen was elected as a reformer in the very beginning. They put it together with what was left of the old progressive conservative party and actually got a governing party that its roots were in that reform party. And it formed a minority government and then a majority government, which is the objective. If, if you don't have the objective of being a, a governing party. It's it's very easy to be just a protest group, and you you can complain and yell, and you'll win a few seats. But the the object, if you want to change the law, if you want to change the constitution, if you want to change how the fe federal money is spent, you've got to get a majority of seats in that three hundred and thirty eight seat parliament. Oh man, so much there. How about how about this? I find it very like. You put in a sunset clause. So you're already looking 10 years out and going, if we haven't accomplished this, this, and this, do we just roll this up and carry on with something new? Essentially, yeah, or, or or you do force people to change. What the sunset clause did is force. You know, the members could have voted to let's just keep doing what we're doing. Sure, it raised the issue: is just doing what we're doing good enough, or have we got to form bigger alliances? Have we got to do something to make this a governing party? And it forced that question. And we, and we had big conferences: two thousand twenty-five, three thousand people. These are members get together. What are we going to do? And they eventually endorsed this. Okay, let's do this alliance thing. And then uh, Harper and McKay took it one more step. Uh, and uh, but I, I think you got to have the object of actually governing because if you don't think you're ever going to govern, you, you'll say things and you'll do things that you would never do or say if you actually thought you had to deliver them. Hmm. That's, that's really interesting. So from day one, you're like, we are going to be government. That is the goal. It isn't just to be enough to be the official opposition and hold their feet to the fire. And, you know, like you look at what, uh, uh, 
so many people stare at Jagmeet Singh right now with the NDP and how they're able to prop up a liberal government so a vote of confidence can't be made. Um, when you look at that, you go, that's not a that's not a recipe for success at all. No, and, and they're going to pay a price for that because in the election, a lot of their voters are going to say, what's the point of voting for you if you're just going to support the Liberals? Might as well vote for the Liberals. Uh, I think uh, federal NDP is going to pay a price for that tactic. But uh, yeah, our, our aim was to, to form a governing party one way or another. <laughs> let me, let me for, for a man who's spent his life in politics, I've been trying to figure out why politicians... Now, and maybe there's nobody that's that's graceful enough to do it. But, you know, like they stick away from some of the hot topic subjects. You know, COVID-19, hot topic. Uh, the, the you know, the one million march for children, hot topic, right? And on and on these hot topics go. And they, they, they really try and dance it. And some of that, you know, like uh, the what is a woman thing, you know? Uh, I've sat in a back room with... Uh, a guy who's in uh, in Saskatchewan politics, and he said, "Well, the cities think different than the provinces or the rural parts." And I'm like, "On um, what a woman is? I don't know about that. I feel like you're kind of like basically propping up a lie. That's what I think." Now, in fairness, I've never been in politics, and I look at uh, you, sir, and you have had spent a long time, and I'm sure you're sitting there going, "Well, we've got to a strange part of the time where I'm I'm glad I'm not, you know, uh, suiting up and going to uh, the ledge, but." Uh, is the day gone where a politician can just say, I just don't think that's that's factual, um, you know, like or was it always approached the city and the rural are going to think differently and we have to approach two different populations in two different aspects? Well, no, no, I, I think you want to try to unite people rather than divide them or and uh, or even permit divisions like the rural urban division. It's not good for a country or for a province for that division to get uh, uh, too broad. I, I think there's various reasons why political people don't address the hard issues. Sometimes it's because they don't know what to do. They honestly don't know what to do. I've seen, like in the House of Commons, there are there are free votes on freer votes on private members' bills. If a private member's bill is passed, uh, even if it came from the opposition, doesn't defeat the government. And the clerk goes up and down the rows, at least he did in our day, and you have to stand yes or no on this motion and i i've seen guys sitting in their seat try bouncing up and down trying try to decide what do i do on this like if you don't know but by the time you get there like you sometimes this indecision is just because they don't know and then the second is because some of these issues are so divisive that the politicians are afraid to take a position on it because it's just going to divide it's going to divide his constituents it's going to divide the party so he avoids the issue because of the division. But uh, I actually don't think those are legitimate excuses. You get elected, you, you ought to have a position on the important issues of the day. If you don't know anything about it, go and find out something about it and and take a position. The um, And you, you can find, like a lot of politics at the end of the day is conflict resolution. At the highest level, you're trying to find a reconciled position between people that are divided but your job ultimately is to re is to re resolve a conflict and uh, i think you can wor work on how do you how do you bridge the gap between the rural and the urban but w one way that I, I think is very relevant and i think premier mo is getting close to this is uh, 
the 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 when you talk about agriculture for example and you say uh, i i want to support agriculture to an urban voter they, immediately what comes into their head is uh, cows and grain that's agriculture you, you know what what are, what are you talking to me about cows and grain i don't see any cows and grain out here in this district and, and but but you can point out to them no that that's the producing end of agriculture on top of that producing sector is an agriculture manufacturing sector which is huge on top of that is an agricultural servicing sector, which is huge. On top of that is an agricultural knowledge sector, which is huge. And those jobs and those incomes for the agriculture manufacturing, servicing, and knowledge sector are mainly in urban areas. So you, Mr. Urban Voter, when you think of agriculture as only cows and grain, no, no, no. It's got, it's got a whole bunch of other stuff on top of that, which creates jobs and incomes for people in the cities. Agriculture is a fundamental building block of the economy on which there's all this other stuff. And you see what I'm getting at? That message starts to, okay, so me, I live in this city, but I, I better have an interest in this agriculture thing because there's so much of what's here is built on top of it. And you can say the same for the energy sector, the mining sector, the forestry sector, and the fishery sector. And, and from Canada's standpoint, like you, you, you ask on on the world stage, where is Canada have the potential for being a global player? We don't have the biggest population. We don't have the most financial resources. We don't have the cleverest federal government. We what what do we got? Far from it. Yes, one thing we got: we are the second largest country by land mass on the face of the planet, which means we have either the largest or the second largest stock of natural resources. We are a global player when it comes to that. So let's build on that. And that's ground for uniting the the, the rural and the urban. But you you got to work at that. This is conflict resolution at, at a fairly high level. And that's and when you're talking conflict resolution, um, that's talking to peace, people face to face, I assume, right? And and finding out their concerns and and, yes. and everything else and, and trying to get them at least to uh um, hear their hear their issues and try and address them, and that usually comes face to face. Correct? Yeah. Well, I, I uh, we of course reform didn't have a lot of didn't have much money at all when it started. So the the only way we could grow was to have public meetings, uh, hundreds of them, you know, two hundred, three hundred meetings a, a year that I would attend. And uh, and though these are face to face, these are not virtual Zoom. Well, that things. wouldn't have been. Yeah, though that wouldn't have been. Possible no, that wasn't even then. feasible. And yeah. and 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 we always had open question periods at the at the end. And often, you know, there'd be embarrassing questions, and it'd be freedom for somebody that was a, a way off in, in left field or right field to say things. But that that's part of the risk you take by having public meetings. But this is meeting real people where they where they live. When when you hit the the peak of uh, 1997 to 2000 with 60 seats, you're the official opposition of the country. I mean, by a lot of standards, that's job well done. Like we have really done something here. And you look at that and you go, because I can imagine inside a party like that. It's like, well, I mean, here in Alberta, Daniel Smith was the victim of walking the floor across. Uh, and a lot of people, I mean, now I think have forgiven her. I mean, geez, they've they've uh, voted her back in. Um, but at the time when she walked across the floor for the Wild Rose and let off a whole nuclear bomb of, of uh, 
things, that was not seen as a, well, I mean, that got the NDP put in, in government and has created their own monster, if you would. Uh, when you're at the height of it, to be at the height and go, we need to bridge a gap with the other side of the conservatives, how hard of a conversation was that with your group in specifically? Because I assume that was not an easy, uh, yeah, that's, this makes sense, and let's just go on our merry way and everything else. Well, I would put to the members, do, do you actually want to have enough seats in this parliament to be able to pass a law that achieves what you want to achieve? We, we wanted to balance the federal budget at a time when the, the liberals and the NDP were not in favor of that at all. But if you if you want to get in a position to do that, you have to have a majority of seats in this. So what, what do you want to do? Just, do you want to just give speeches and talk about what should be done? Or do you want to take the steps that are necessary to, to actually become a governing party? And eventually we carried the, we, we had a big referendum on this, ultimately the decision. What, what, what Danielle did, and uh, I don't blame her for what she, she was ahead of her time by saying that the, the Wild Rose and the PCs got to get together some way. They can't keep splitting the vote. So, so that was, she, they, they, she was ahead of her time when she did that the first time, but eventually that's exactly what had to happen. And uh, we used that argument federally, and we, we, had, a, we had a big referendum process, and eventually the members voted. After all debate and us, people, some people disagreed, that the, then the members voted, no, let's create this bigger, broader alliance. And then when uh, Harper and McKay took it the one step further, th this wasn't just decided by a few people in the back room. It was decided through a big process and a big convention and uh, uh, a vote that was taken to carry their judgment. I'm a sports guy. I just I look at this from a sports mentality, and this is the one thing I, I I have a hard time understanding. Wild Rose and the Reform had the same thing going for them; they were both the official opposition. They were they were in the position, the seat of power, if you would. In the Conservatives should join us. We should just be the Wild Rose. We should just be the Reform Party, and then everybody knows all Conservatives are under our banner. Why was it that? Instead of that being the case, you had to dismantle the reform in order to create something new. Well, we, we wouldn't say dismantle. We just grew it to cre uh, create something new. There was no surrendering of the reform's basic positions in, in the Canadian alliance. In fact, if you look at the constitution of the Canadian alliance and its initial platform, it's very there's very little difference between it and reform. But... The, the object was, you know, if you're content, and today there are groups that are content, there are groups that are content with just saying what their position is, and with apparently no desire to actually get it implemented, the, the end game is to be able to say it and say, this is what our position is, this is what the other guy should do, and just to do that. And, and if people want to, are satisfied with that, there's it's a free country, they can do that. But uh, our object was to actually get the thing done that is being talked about, not just give more speeches about it. So am I inferring then you're like, well, actually, we kept all of our the only thing we didn't keep was the name reform. We kept all of what we wanted and uh, together, uh, you know, probably an olive branch, the conservative party at the time. Uh, created something new with a, a well, lot of the well, structure. Yeah, yeah, you, you had to broaden out. One, like we've talked a little bit earlier about Western alienation, and reform was a party to try to address that. One way to deal with that, and you can still do it today, is just hammer away on Western positions. Just hammer away on them. You, 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 you don't, can't carry the judgment of the rest of the country, but you get the satisfaction of saying, this is what the West want, this is what the West believes, to heck with the rest of you. Or you can take a, an approach 
that this country is a country of regions. Canada is a country of regions. Atlantic Canada is a specific region. The Laurentian region is a special region. Ontario is a region. The West is a region. The Pacific Coast is a region. Each of these regions has unique aspirations, distinctive. You can use the word distinctive, which fits in well with Quebec. And, and we want our distinctive aspirations and concerns dealt with. But maybe the price of that is being willing to recognize that somebody else also has distinctive uh, aspirations and concerns. And the price of us getting ours dealt with is us being supportive of somebody else's distinctive aspirations and concerns being dealt with. This is a way to harness the, the regional character of the country, but keep the country together. You know, a federal party that said, we recognize the regional character of Canada, and we recognize that each of you regions has distinctive aspirations and concerns, and we're going to address them all. The only condition is the price of us dealing with your distinctives is your willingness to go along when we deal with somebody else. I, I think that approach would get a lot of the West's distinctives dealt with, but it's by broadening it out in that kind of a way. Now, that, that doesn't abandon what reform or the... The, the desire of people who want to deal with the West's aspirations. It, that's not abandoning that in any way, shape, or form, but it's taking a different strategy to actually get it done, to get action on it, rather than just sit back and here's our position. We don't care if it's ever achieved or not. <laughs> do you do you think that uh, in, in, a, in a federal, you know, you look at Pierre and it looks like, you know, from all intents and purposes, you, you call an election tomorrow, he's going to win in the landslide. That's that's my eyes on it. Maybe maybe I'm a little off, but uh, certainly, uh, you know, where Trudeau and, and the liberals sit in the polls, it's it's they're tanking. And, uh, you know, there's no other real options of being here's where they're going to be and, and they could challenge yep. the conservatives. Yep. Do you think under a Pierre in the, in that group, because you probably have more insight into it than I ever will, do you think that's that's possible to get the West to to buy back in? Because right now the West seems very well upset. Well, no, I, I think it is. If that if that's what it takes, it takes broadening this out to get these Western aspirations dealt with. I mean, if, if that, that's what your aim is, to get your aspirations dealt with. But if the price of that is recognizing Atlantic Canada's distinctiveness, what what would be wrong with that? As long as we get our aspirations and, and distinctives dealt with. And, and if you're in national politics in this country, you cannot take national unity for granted. You talk about waking up in the day and uh, in the morning and figuring out what how do we reconcile conflicting interests in this country? A federal politician, particularly a governing politician, has to be thinking about how to maintain the unity of the country because it's 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 very easily fractured it's such a huge country with people with different views and different parts of it and if that strategy is one way of getting the west aspirations dealt with by recognizing the aspirations of, of others i i think it's worth that uh, uh, taking that approach yes well i don't know now i, I got to think about how i'm going to word this but um in I'm sure in provincial too. I, I I can't sit here and act like I know either of this, but in federal politics, it seems like more and more um, you hear more of how lobbyist groups work and we can be certain they were there before. They're not just new these days. Although, uh, it, you know, you got different things like um, uh, the World Economic Forum, different, different topics like that influencing. You got people like Christia Freeland who are visibly on that board and, and on it goes. Uh, how much of a concern when you sit there, 
you stare at that and go, well, this is concerning. And it's possible to create unity in a country while being influenced by things that are of not our country. Well, yeah, I think uh, it is a concern, the, the role of sp special interests in that. W one way of, of mitigating that, again, in a free country, you can't abolish them. You can't say, you you know, you start doing that, you're interfering with people's freedom. But w one thing you can do is, is keep applying the democratic test. Is what this interest group saying, that, that would that carry the majority of the people that we that I'm accountable to? This is the democratic test. It allows you to attach a weight. How much weight should I attach to the position that this interest group is taking? I'll attach as much weight to it as the rank and file of people in the country would attach to it if they understood what they were doing. That, like, that's a dem using the democratic process, the democratic yeah. ethic to attach how much importance should I pay to this this special interest group? And I, I think that's again, you have to be committed to the democratic process to even ask that and answer that question. But I think that's one way of mitigating the influence, the excessive influence of interest groups. Uh, okay. And this, this, you, you like stories, uh, Sean, this is going back. <laughs> I certainly do. <laughs> this, the role of people with a faith commitment or a a value commitment can the, the role that they can play and how absolutely crucial it can be in the uh, my, during my father's time of course Leduc the, the oil Alberta was flat on its back in the depression in 1938 Alberta's budget was 17 million dollars 9 million it was debt service who ran the province of Alberta on 8 million dollars there wasn't enough to pay the salaries of civil servants so the province defaulted on its interest on its debt so then it couldn't borrow either. It was just flat. But in 1947, lo and behold, Imperial Oil hit <laughs> oil at Leduc. The, 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 you know, the oil, this was just a godsend to Alberta. It pulled it out of the out of the muck. And the, the next day, pretty near, the, the oil guys from all over the place, but particularly in the US, showed up in Edmonton and they had two questions. Where is Leduc and who do you pay? to get drilling rates because there's virtually no other, there's very few jurisdictions in North America where the people that were in charge at the time of an oil boom weren't corrupted but by guys trying to buy drilling rights by going sure. around the system. Texas, Oklahoma, California, Alaska. There was even a, a federal uh, administration of Warren G. Harving, the, the Secretary of the Interior went to jail because he took bribes to grant drilling rights in teapot dome so and so and the same thing they came to alberta and said where's the where's the duke <laughs> south of edmonton and who do we pay and there were two guys that they went to with that pitch well, one was a civil servant he was a lowly civil servant alberta didn't have an energy oil and gas department it had a mines department and and gas and that was way down in the ladder in the mines department a guy by the name of hubert somerville he was a professional civil servant and he had a professional civil servant's ethic and when they came to him and said do we pay you can you give us drilling rights he said no we don't do it that way here and he said no the other guy they went to was the head of the uh, the social credit political party, Orvis Kennedy was his name. He was a committed Christian. He was head of that Gideon organization that put Bibles in hotels. 
And they go to Kennedy and say, are you the guy? You're the political guy. You, you got all these connections with the MLAs. Do we pay you or we pay them? Who do we pay? And Kennedy said, if you, I hear you offering to pay anybody that's an elected official or anybody in the party, I will make sure one thing, that you and your company never get drilling rights in the province of Alberta. Just these two guys saying that spared Alberta the tragedy that happened in most of the other jurisdictions where there was an oil boom, just two guys. And in Kennedy's case, it was because he thought he was accountable to God, not just accountable to the legislature. Well, the aren't election. we all, Preston? Yeah, yeah. And that, that uh, just those two people. And of course, the oil guys, this was fine with the company. So it's cheaper than doing business in Louisiana. Like, <laughs> this, is, this is good. It's a good story. I appreciate well, the story it is. It, because it, it does show you don't you don't have to just a few people in the right places making an ethical decision can spare a province or a government or a, a people an enormous amount of pain. You get corruption into the oil, oil patch, and it's a Dickens of a thing to get out. You know, go to Venezuela or Nigeria. <laughs> study well, you know everyone. What can one man do or one woman do, right? And yeah. your story is is well. Quite beautiful. It's right there. It's like that's what one or two people can do. You know, it can. Uh, uh, and I think it's a. Uh, uh, you know, for where we sit in today's world, it'd be shocked uh, with what one person can do, especially with the ability of social media and technology and everything else. It's it's actually quite impressive what one person can do um, these yeah. days. You know, um, here in Alberta, you were hired, uh, brought on by Daniel Smith to do the the, the panel, the Public Health Emergency Governance Review. If I've ever heard of a political name, there it is for the 10,000th time. I read it. I don't know what I took into my brain because you guys and your political jargon. I'm sorry, Preston. This guy on this side, I'm just like, can you just put it into nice, easy bullets that just say, this is what we learned. This is what we're changing. Um, and I would, I'd be remiss if I didn't say, uh, you know, when I was, when I first heard about it, I was really, um, I, I don't know. And I, I want you to, to talk about the experience. Uh, when I first heard about it, I was like, holy man, this is going to blow the top off of COVID-19 because there's a lot of things that I really, truly believe not only Alberta, uh, but the world got extremely irrevocably wrong on COVID-19. And, you know, um, I think it's it's stated in the document more and, uh, over and over again about what the panel's objective was and that a lot of people didn't realize, including myself, that that's what it was going to be. Um I don't know you you because I think this is correct me if I'm wrong. I'll read it here. The panel's objective is to review the legislation and government's practices typically used by the government of Alberta during management of a public health emergency and other emergencies to recommend changes, uh, which, in the view of the panel, are necessary to improve the government's of of Alberta's response to future emergencies. I think that's that that if that summarizes it. Yeah, that's pretty good. First of all, I think credit has to be given to Daniel Smith. The Alberta government's the only government that attempted any kind of an investigation as to what lessons can be learned from this thing. No other government, certainly not the federal government, no other provincial governments do it. And and but the the, the terms of reference were relatively narrow and and had to be narrow because she wasn't premier when the all the COVID thing happened, but a whole bunch of other MLAs and cabinet ministers were. So how are you going to get those folks to agree to any kind of investigation it was narrowed down to the it's this is a legislative inquiry look at the legislation that authorized the orders and regulations whereby alberta responded to covid 
crisis and suggest improvements to that legislation to better equip it to handle future emergencies. That's the one sentence. So this was a legislative panel. But uh, and, and what it came up with was a whole bunch of recommendations, amendments to some of the key statutes that governed Alberta's response, particularly the Public Health Act, the Emergency Management Act, and the Alberta Bill of Rights. And uh, th that was sort of the narrow focus of it. And that was the product that came out of the end. There's about 60 proposed amendments. If you, if you have trouble sleeping at night, I recommend that nothing better than reading lists of amendments to statutes. <laughs> put you under but that was our mandate so this this report is not going to win the nobel prize for literature but it does address here's a bunch of things that alberta could do to be better prepared the next go around well um a few of the things i was happy to see in there i guess was uh there was a lot focused on kids uh education um, there was some in there about the the college and dealing and and i i don't you know you can do the terminology this is where i'm like I some days I just can't you know this is when you talk about putting you to bed I'm like oh man this is this is a lot to read um well there's there's three main categories of these sure. recommendations the, the first one is how can you how can you can you change the administration and the regulatory system so it can better respond to these emergencies and the main recommendation there is that we, we say that Alberta Emergency Management Agency, which is supposed to have a broad view, these are experts in managing emergency, regardless of what it is, health, fires, floods, whatever, that they ought to be the main agency coordinating the response, not the subject matter agency. Like if it's a health emergency, of course the health department's gonna be involved, but this other agency ought to have the overall responsibility for coordination because the measures adopted while they address start with health, they have economic, social, legal consequences that need a broader picture. So that's the main recommendation there. And if the government accepts it, and at this stage, it's government's got this, they haven't decided what they're going to do. If they accept that, there'll be major amendments to and beefing up of that agency to handle future emergencies. Then the second category is recognizing that when a government responds to these emergencies, you're trying to do two things. You're trying to protect the public from the harm that the emergency might do, but you're also got to protect the rights and freedoms of people because the COVID response measures that you adopt will circumscribe and limit those rights and freedoms. So the next big category in our recommendations are about 20 amendments to the Alberta Bill of Rights to beef up the protection of rights and everything, right? Freedom of expression, freedom of belief, freedom of action to beef up the protection of that in a public emergency. And you can mainly do that through amendments to the Alberta Bill of Rights. We can't change the charter. That's a federal thing and it's a constitutional thing, but we can change the Alberta Bill of Rights, which gives direction to the courts. And it actually gives direction to the courts if our amendments were accepted, saying we want you guys to attach more weight than you did the last time to protection of rights and freedoms. And then the, th the third category is to look at the uh, the health system itself. The, the, all these experts say to cope with a this is just common sense to cope with an emergency. You need surge capacity in your system because there's a surge in demand for health services. Our system does not have surge capacity, so we've got a whole list of. These are all incremental changes. They don't require a fundamental change of the system. They're all consistent with the Canada Health Act, preserving universal coverage. But there's about 10 
recommendations, expanding the use of, uh, of, of nurses, of licensed nurse practitioners, a bigger role for the pharmaceutical people, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the, the main recommendations are coming in those three categories. Can you improve the administrative regulatory system? Can you improve the protection of rights and freedoms? And can you provide surge capacity in the case of health to handle a health emergency? Well, the rights and freedoms, uh, certainly, I think uh, we all witnessed that, whether you people want to admit it or not. I think it was pretty evident that a whole group of people's um, everything, businesses right down to the individual person just got stomped on, which was uh, a wild experience to be a part of, to be honest, Preston. Um, yeah. The other, the thing I was wondering, in, in, in your investigation of this, and I don't know exactly how to make the, how to, how to, uh, um, flesh out this thought if you would but was there anything in there that said suggested like when you put together your panel of experts and i put that in quotes because i thought the experts got an awful lot wrong how do you get it so that you have a diverse not just a diversity of people like in the sense of occupation but a diversity in opinion because one of the things that happened was a certain section of the population was just silenced and removed from the conversation. And is there a way to have it so that you have, even if you disagree adamantly with some point, you still have them a part of the experts so that you can get it right. And you can always have the contradiction of, well, let's hear out the other side. Because even today, there's a portion of the population that is deemed as wild and off the charts and everything else. And yet, when I look at how the... Uh, mandates all came to an end it became a, a good chunk of those wild people who went to ottawa and demanded their rights back so how do we put those people at the at the table from the beginning so that uh, it never gets to that point again and i mean well, that's a large question yeah no there's three things that you can do that are dealt with in that report there's no doubt more one of it on the science side if you're going to have science advice it should be multidisciplinary Sure, the thing may start as a, in this case, as a health emergency. So you're going to have infectious disease people. But because the response measures have economic consequences, school consequences, social consequences, you've got to have a, a much broader range of science brought to bear sure. on it. So one of the recommendations is that a senior science officer be attached to this emergency management agency and be made responsible for developing an inventory of science advice, multidisciplinary science advice and science advisors that the government can draw upon the next go around. So that's a, that's one way of coming out on, on the science side. The, the second is uh, these amendments we propose to the Bill of Rights include strengthening freedom of expression protection for freedom of expression. So people who do have different narratives and different views can't be shut down in, in the course of the trying to figure out what to do. You may disagree with them and, and they may have to adjudicate, well, who's, what, whose expertise do we accept? But you don't deal with it by shutting people down, by censorship. And the way to provide that protection is to strengthen freedom of expression as communicated in the uh, Alberta Bill of Rights. And then the, the third area, government's regulations come into four categories. You can have orders in council where, where the cabinet has to approve what's going on. These are elected people. You can, of course, there's ministerial orders where at least one elected official has to uh, sign off. 
that you can hold accountable. Then in a lot of the statutes, way down in the middle of the statutes, there's a thing that says, and the lieutenant governor and council are authorized to make regulations. <laughs> this is Magna Carta to the civil service to generate all kinds of regulations. But then the fourth category is where the government has delegated regulatory powers to third parties, like the College of Physicians and Surgeons, or like the College of Psychologists in Ontario and whatever. And, and the, these uh, bodies can censor their members, you know, if, if they, they don't like what they're saying, we can pull. And we saw that we saw that all throughout yeah. COVID. Yeah. So we, we proposed a few amendments to the, it's called the Health Professions Act, which is the act that delegates this regulatory power to those colleges to, to provide greater freedom of expression in their, their operation. And you can direct this by statute, which is how we come at it. So those are three ways of trying to address the problem that you raised. With, with, with the amendments that you, you bring up, specifically, let's just stick with the colleges. They can just laugh at it and carry on. Can they not? No, no, no. They'd be in violation of their act. And and so someone could go to court and the, the court could order them to, to stop doing but, what they're doing. But they don't have to take on your recommendations is all I mean. No, no, no the, the government has to. The, the, if the government has to, if the government agrees with this, they, they amend the Health Professions Act. And then these colleges- And then it would have- Interesting. Oh yeah, well they, that's that's how the law works. The law says you can do this or you can't do that, and, and you have to change the law if you want to uh, to get that. And uh, we say we, we, it's in chapter chapter what is it? Chapter eight. I can't remember. <laughs> it's in one of those chapters there. There's a, a list of four amendments to the uh, Health Professions Act to try to address that. Forgive me then. Where do we sit with the Alberta government on your report? Well, as often happens with this report, they, they receive it. They say, thank you for this. And we're going to take a look at it. And we're, then we're going to announce which of these recommendations we can endorse. But uh, the, the fact that the, that the premier commissioned this thing means that they're, they're generally wanted to get some advice on what can be done. Well, I'll, I'll mention this. When I have the premier here on later this month, I'm going to bring it up because I'm like, it's really um, fascinating that you, you know, like I know a ton of doctors who've been on this show who have been harassed, et cetera, et cetera, even lost license because of their views during COVID. Yeah, and there's yeah. a whole host of people that um, held on for dear life because of some of the thoughts from those doctors. And here we sit years later and, um, you know, that. There's just been no recourse on on the colleges specifically on what they did and, and continued to do with the censoring and silencing of doctors who spoke out against the um, the narrative or the direction of what the, the, the college was setting, of what certain experts were setting, certainly what the government was pushing, uh, you know, for a series of what felt like a lifetime, but it was only, you know, what, two years roughly? I mean, even where we sit today, there's still... Um, and this isn't part of the, the 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 scope of your work, but I mean, in Alberta or across Canada, they're still recommending the boosters for, um, you know, COVID, which, you know, there's so much evidence now out with a, a host of experts that say that they should just be abolished yesterday, you know, let alone today. Yeah, and this guaranteeing this freedom of exp expression, like, like particularly when you get into these technical issues, is this safe or is this not? 
the, the, the way to get at that is not, is not through arguing through the social media or something like that. There ought to be a formal hearing somewhere with people that are knowledgeable on the subject where all, all the views on this can be freely expressed and debated and cross-examined and everything else. The, the, the idea that there's only a single narrative on say the causes of COVID, or there's only a single narrative on how best to respond is a it's undemocratic and it 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 can as you say very well lead to errors because you don't and we we had a big in, even internal discussion on the panel one of the things that the civil service will argue is if you acknowledge uncertainty then people won't comply with the regulation like you're trying to protect people so if you say we think this is the best thing to do but like because a lot of those people will tell you privately we, we think this is the best thing we're not sure that it may change we don't have all the information at the beginning but there's this argument if you acknowledge uncertainty if the trumpet gives an uncertain sound who will prepare themselves for battle that kind of an argument and we had this debate internally and we ended up concluding that transparency is better than insisting on a single narrative if you go if you're uncertain tell the public you're uncertain just like your doctor would you go to your doctor with some novel um, condition that and the guy says look I, i'm not a hundred percent sure on what's what's wrong with you or what what we should do but th this is my best judgment is this what we should do but he acknowledges a certain degree of uncertainty so if it turns out there's more information later on or something changes you're not Surprised, the guy was honest with you. He didn't say he was hundred percent sure. And how to get to that, that that sort of mentality and that approach in an emergency is kind of what our recommendations are aiming at. Like you, and you hear this from again, politician always has to remember this. What you say to people and what they hear is something quite different sometimes. I, I used to send guys to other people's political meetings. I send six people to the other guys' political meeting. They come back with six report. I did these people all go to the same meeting because they, different things struck people differently. But on the COVID thing, what the public heard at the beginning, and this is mainly from the federal government to start with, was if you get vaccinated, you won't get COVID nineteen. That's what they heard. To start with. Then a little while later, it was if you get vaccinated twice, uh, you won't get COVID. Then a few months later, if you get vaccinated twice and get a booster, you won't get COVID. And then a little while later, if you get vaccinated twice and get a booster, you may get COVID, but the symptoms will be less. Like the, the, these are. The, I don't. And, I don't have to speak. Sorry, Preston. I don't have yeah. to speak for politicians. Certainly, yeah. media. That's exactly what they said. Yeah. They, oh, yeah. They, and the they, media they amplified came, that. The media and, amplified that. And then they said ninety-four percent, and then it's eighty-eight percent percent, and then it's this percent. Like we watched it play out. I mean, yeah. uh, in Alberta alone, we were offered uh, uh, just about everything under the sun to go get vaccinated. I mean, the the premier came out and said it's a pandemic of the unvaccinated. So did Scott Moe. So did a whole host of people across yeah. the world. And it's just, you know, whether that was uh, something nefarious in the vaccines or just a, a, a bedlam of hysteria all at the same time. Yeah. We have to and, ensure that it never and, happens and again. It, 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 if you would acknowledge the uncertainty, that would be a step in the right direction. And sure, uh, but, if but you would acknowledge that there wasn't one, like one absolute way we get out of this, right? Because yeah, that's yeah. what they were trying to do. 
There's one option. Let's get back. And like you say, the the media, the, the there was misinformation was amplified by the by the media, by the mainstream media in particular. Well, because it, our our hope is our hope is that this uh, uh, this report it it say it's got about sixty amendments to these key statutes, and if the government were to accept the majority of them, it would better prepare the province for dealing with a future emergency, not just a health emergency, because. One of the things the historians tell you is don't don't assume that the next emergency will be like the last one because it rarely is. It's always you know after nine eleven for ten years everybody assumed the next big emergency is going to be a terrorist thing. Well, no, the next big emergency was a health thing, which is quite different. Well, I appreciate you hopping on, Preston. I, I've uh, enjoyed our chat. If you'll give me a few extra minutes, I want to I want to I want to pause. I want to uh, yep. invite everybody to go over to Substack. We're going to talk a couple more things, but uh, we're going to take a brief pause here. We're going to slide over to Substack. So if you want to hear the last portion of mine and Preston's conversation, please hop on over to Substack. And I got a couple more questions for him. So uh, we'll see you over there. <laughs> 